Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am jazzed today for this second edition of Tough Talks from the Top. Too often, I hear from folks in large corporate environments, I can't say that, and things will never change, so I can. My guest today has been in the senior executive ranks to actually lead the change needed for cultures where people can stay true to themselves, say what needs to be said, and thrive in big corporate settings. Her 28-year career at Verizon Communications included roles as Senior Vice President of Global Engineering and Planning and of Enterprise Customer Care, as well as Chief Procurement Officer, leading groups with 10,000 staff, operating budgets of a billion dollars, and capital programs over 10 billion. She's a role model, especially for women and Asians, having cultivated, empowered, and engaged cultures and operationalized Verizon's commitment to diversity. Her board and executive leadership have been widely recognized including as an honoree of the NACD Directorship 100, one of directors and boards, racial and ethnic directors to watch, and outstanding 50 Asian Americans in business. Her current chapter is leading a nonprofit that helps develop leaders and organizations to sustain economic and social value. Meet my fellow chemical engineer, a native of South Korea who immigrated to the U.S. at age 13, and now the CEO of Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance, Jeannie Defend Defer. Defend Defer. Did I get it right? Jeannie, welcome to Say It Skillfully. You did. Thank you, Molly. It's such a delight and pleasure to be speaking with you. I've been dying to do this, and I am so glad that we were able to finally make it work. I am too. And we must give a shout out to our beloved and incredible Liz Bremner, who brought us together. Liz is a powerhouse philanthropy executive. And she helped me immensely in my early days in learning about nonprofits. Mm. Yeah, she's a, she's a real gem. Yes, she is. We have like so many directions to go, which is a huge blessing. Um, as listeners may have heard, I often quote my dear friend Gary Ridge, who's the chairman emeritus and former CEO of WD40, who coined the term soul-sucking environments where people aren't anywhere near being their best selves and they're not speaking their truth at work. So in these 50 or so minutes, um, I appreciate Jeannie an inside look into your corporate experiences. We really love to hear your candid thoughts, particularly when uh, you needed, as I know you did, to break with convention, hold your own and stay true to yourself, uh, which I imagine uh, often was needing to speak up in very skillful ways. <laughs> Uh, before we do that, please, though, give us some insights into your inspiring journey, growing up in Asia and then building a life here in the States. Wow. So um, down memory lane. Um, and I'll try to make this uh, in a shortened version. So I was born and raised in Seoul, South Korea, and at age 13, immigrated with my dad and two of my siblings to New York of all places. And um, from there, 
I went to Sacred Heart School in Manhattan, um, where they had to curate a customized program for me, uh, because having graduated elementary school in Korea, didn't speak a stitch of English at the time. So the mothers and sisters and brothers and fathers at Sacred Heart had to um, put me with ESL, also put me in ninth grade math and science um, because it was I was just so far advanced compared to the other programs. And I had the most incredible experience in that environment, just learning and soaking it all in. And from the very beginning, I honestly, now I look back, think, Molly, that I didn't like having a sort of a wall or a deterrence of a language that would potentially prevent me from sort of succeeding, however I define success at that time. So I made it my mission to master the language. And at, at a young age, and 13 is a pretty tough time, right? I look back now and I say, wow, I was really focused. Um, and I really paid attention to learning and mastering the language for the ensuing, I would say, four or five years. Um, and long story short, from the Sacred Heart School, I went to public junior high in Queens, and then high school in Queens, that was public school as well. And I graduated in 1980 um, from high school and then went to Tufts University in Boston, which was fabulous experience. And I was lucky enough to get pretty much a full scholarship to Tufts majored in chemical engineering, um, which is, I find us everywhere, which is so fun. Um, and then I graduated in 1984, and it was a terrible year for chemical engineers, just my luck. I remember dumping like, I don't know, close to 100 letters and resumes to every company in the industry. And, you know, 99% of them weren't hiring. And I didn't want to leave Boston um, in the end because I loved being there. I had to choose between going into Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, to be part of the management program at Procter & Gamble and staying in Boston and uh, entering the management internship program um, at New England Telephone, which is several generation predecessor to Verizon Communications in Boston. And I decided that I wanted to stay in Boston because honestly, I visited Cincinnati a few times through the interviewing process, and I didn't see anyone that looked like me. Um, and that really left the mark. Um, and I decided to say no to Procter & Gamble and stayed in Boston. And I figured, you know, I stay a couple of years at Verizon or New England Telephone um, to pass time until my industry recovered. And as it Sometimes happens 28 years later. Um, I retired 10 years ago. So here I am. Wow. Wow. Before we get into some of the tough talks, I do have to, to uh, spend a little time here going back. When you left South Korea with zero English, 
and I get this. Um, and I and I and I did not I did not I think take it as well as you did. Do you remember like oh this is going to be fabulous you're going to love it and you're like okay great or were you like why are we leaving I'm I don't want to leave do you remember emotionally? oh I do you know it's so funny so initially when my dad told us that we're going to um, America I was so psyched you know it was an like an exciting journey you know it's going to be great I love the idea. And then I remember, oh my God, it's so clear, Molly. I was sitting on the airplane. I looked out the window and I just sobbed. I had no idea where I was going and I didn't want to leave. And it just all hit me. I think it, fi- it finally occurred to me that this was like not a vacation trip. <laughs> they were leaving for good. And I remember that feeling. And the other one that I have this visual is after we landed in JFK and we were driving from the airport in a car, I suspect it was a cab, to my stepmother's house in Manhattan. And I remember looking at all the parked cars on sides of the roads and I was stunned how packed they were. You know, it's funny how when you're young, you have these visuals that never leave you. So, yeah, that's my memory. Do you recall, was, so, so New York, blessing is a melting pot. Did you feel like, okay, we fit in. There's other kids who don't speak English too. Did you feel like I'm the lone genie uh, out there? Yeah. So, you know, I think it made all the difference for me actually starting in a Catholic school because the environment was... I have to say, really positive, and everybody around me were super supportive of my need to learn the language and catch up. And the students um, at that time, there were lots of Asian Americans in the school, and in particular, Filipinos, who I believe are... um, Many of them are Catholic, right? So I saw a lot of Filipinos in my classes. So in that sense, I didn't feel um, like one of one and nobody else looked like me uh, because that didn't happen. However, I will tell you, even very young age at that time, walking home from school, which was several blocks, I got bullied. I remember being bullied by boys, um, white boys who call me names. And I remember at one point, I actually punched one of them because I, I just, I was so fed up. And I remember him falling and crying and his other two friends picking him up. Um, I don't remember much after that. <laughs> I love it. Do not mess with me. <laughs> so one other question from this time, because I, again, I appreciate you just you, not, not where you want to be yet in English, way ahead in math and science. And for you, was that just, I mean, was it just a challenge you're going to make that happen? Did people make fun of you because you were so smart in math and science? Did you feel like that was okay? No, I don't remember that actually. Uh, maybe I put it it out of my mind, but I have no recollection of being made fun of in school. 
And after spending a couple of years at Sacred Heart, when I transferred to junior high, because it was in Queens, again, the public school system had lots of diversity, Molly. So I don't remember ever looking around saying, oh, my God, I'm the only one who looked like me here. Um, so I didn't have that feeling. But this feeling of inadequacy because I didn't speak the language definitely was hanging over me. And again, I mean, I was one of those probably typical immigrant kids who studied my butt off to make sure I caught up. And I remember in junior high, I skipped a grade um, because I was able to catch up a bit. Still, I was, I think I was one of the oldest kids in class, but I, I, I memorized textbooks so I could stay, you know, um, sort of at par and um, really, you know, spending a lot of extra time I bought a, you know, those, uh, remember those metal recipe boxes with yeah. four by six index cards? Yeah, yeah. I bought one of those, put them in index cards from A to Z. And every day I memorized several words of English alphabetically from A to Z and back again. I, I was maniacal. I love it. The motivation the dedication, uh, obviously part of who you are and served you very well. Thank you for that. And get a little bit of a peek into <laughs> what's made you so tough. I love it underneath that smiley, glowing demeanor. So uh, take us through the corporate life, you know, New England Telephone. I don't know how uh, super diverse it was. I don't know how many women. So take us through being, you know, uh, a college Brad and your career. And, you know, I remember coming out of IBM distinctly just thinking you had to be different. You couldn't be your real self. You certainly couldn't say what you needed to, be, needed to just wanted to say, right? Just somehow that was just ingrained in me. So I'd love to hear if you somehow were able to skip that part um, <laughs> and, and how you navigated. Well, you know, it's funny. From the first day I started, I never forget it. This is another visual in my head. I entered a uh, because I was a field supervisor um, as a management trainee, I started in the field. So an, an organization called Equipment Installation, which is like 100 years old in <laughs> human telephone. And these are the folks who actually install all of the switching gear and equipment in, in buildings, what we call central offices. Uh, which are sort of buildings with computers inside that make all our telephone calls go through, right? And I remember walking into the front door and being met by this enormous, gigantic man who seemed to me um, like a technician. Um, he was not one of mine, but I think he was um, another department technician who stood in front of me. He had all this gear hanging around his belt, I recall. He looked at me and he said, I know who you are. You are Jeannie Hyun. That's my maiden name, right? And you are something like you're a college grad. Um, you're here. And he said something like you took, you know, one of our jobs and I don't expect you to last. I didn't even get my foot in the door. 
Wow. I know. And the only reaction I could give was I said, okay. <laughs> and I smiled. I said, okay. I, I, I said something probably like, I need to get in there now. <laughs> you know? um, and I'll go back to this over and over again, perhaps in our conversation, Molly, but one of the blessings that I have and I, I don't know where it comes from, honestly. I never took it personally. Well, I, never is a hard word. Maybe most of the time. <laughs> um, and it really made me survive. And um, I entered an organization that never, ever had a Asian person in management i think they make they could have been maybe one or two in the technician ranks i think i was a second college hire into the organization i believe the first college hire was an african-american woman who left after i think like a couple of years so um i you know they probably thought that was success right so i was a second person to enter personal color certainly a woman of color and first Asian American to be in the management ranks, supervising 100%. I, I probably say Irish Catholic, many of them second generation um, or third generation technicians. And a lot of them were World War II veterans and Korean War veterans. And I was their supervisor. So it was fascinating. And I think what made it work in the end is one, I didn't, like I said, I didn't take it personally, whatever came at me, I sort of took it as, um, wow, you know, that that's really your, your issue, not mine. Second, I was a, I am still super curious person. And one of the things that I really wanted to learn was the craft. So even though I was a supervisor, I was super curious about the work they did. And I remember being really in awe of the skills that they had to do the jobs they did. And I remember for in the beginning, they thought that I was sort of watching over them. Um, you know, because sometimes supervisor watch over their work, right? To make sure you're doing it right. And because most of the other supervisors grew up in the ranks, they were technicians for years before getting promoted to management. They saw that as a negative thing. Like, you're watching me. I don't need you to be watching me. I know what I'm doing. So they thought I was doing the same. Of course, I knew nothing. <laughs> and I let them know. I said, no, I'm watching because I want to learn. I'm like super curious as to how this works. And once they figure that out, you know, all kinds of positive possibilities emerged where I, I am a firm believer that human beings by nature love teaching other people and they love talking about what they know and what they do. And once they figured out I was truly curious, they were giddy telling me what they did. <laughs> and we ended up establishing a beautiful relationship for the most part. And I was also very firm 
And part of this is, you know, when your back's against the wall, you kind of do what you have to do. And one other characteristic I possess, which saved my bacon many times, is I'm fairly quick on my feet. So when people come at me with sarcasm and racial slurs or gender slurs, most of the time I was actually pretty good at giving it back to them. And I think that sense of humor and being quick on my feet also really helped me get acclimated into the environment. Ah, I'm just like so excited to hear all this because it's uh, it's what you could control. And I love that you didn't take things personally. And if something was, eh, you made it the other person's issue, which is, I, I can't tell you the number of senior people I work with. Like, this is not about you. This, this is exactly the, right. But exactly. it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> And sometimes you just don't know what comes out of your mouth, right? And again, because I was, half the time I was just so stunned at what people would say to me. Um, And, you know, being an Asian American, um, in many ways, non-Asians, especially back in those days, they don't care that you're Korean or Japanese or Chinese or Vietnamese, right? For them, you're just foreign. And particularly the Korean War veterans, and the veterans in general who fought the Japanese, I mean, I was sort of, I looked like the enemy. I, and I remember when we used to have these arguments, many of them would say, you know, you guys, like, we threw bombs at you and turned around, you threw it back at us. And I look at them, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? I'm like, what are you saying? And, um, you know, and they always... One of this one actually, this is one of the things I love. They are so um, authentic in so many ways, right? And so they're not pretentious. I have to, you know, frankly give them that. And I am all for non-pretentious interaction, right? So I remember I used to have these town hall meetings in auditoriums in my, you know, with my hundreds and hundreds of technicians. And, you know, these are all bargain for shops. So the, all the union reps would be lined up in the back and many of them would sit up front just to, you know, look for opportunities to kind of ding at me, right? Give me one, something that I that would trip me over. I remember there's this one guy, uh, he will go nameless. Um, he always enjoyed like trying to trip me up all the time. And I remember him standing up at one of those sessions and he said, you know, I just want to tell you how difficult it is that one week a month when you guys, when you women or you girls, you know, have this thing and we have to deal with it. It's tough dealing with PMS. (laughs) And thank God I was like, I I to this is like, oh my God, I don't know how it happened. But I remember looking, looking at him straight in the eye And I said to him, you know, X, Y, Z, okay, but you know what the problem is? I have to deal with you, X, Y, Z, because you have PMS every single day. And the entire place erupted. (laughs) My God. Hilarious. (laughs) Oh, my God. That is priceless. 
Oh my God. And the union reps afterwards came up to him and said, Jeannie, you gave it to him good. <laughs> so my friend, this is how reputations are built. I would imagine, Jeannie, through your just persistence and consistency, that word got out. Oh yeah. That, right? This is this is the deal here. And uh, you know, blurt it out at your at your peril. Um, exactly. You know, and it's, um, and you know, fr- I mean, and many of them could have said, oh, she's bluffing. You know what I mean? It's like, but it didn't matter in a way because I think it sort of demonstrated that uh, I, whether or not it could be stupid, but I had, you know, boldness, right? I had a sense of fearlessness and courage to stand up for myself. Yeah. And, um, I, I did. I, I don't know where it comes from, but I think I do have that. Well, that is uh, where greatness starts. You have to believe in yourself. So yeah. how how did you, I mean, this is just so amazing because I love, and just for listeners' sake, this ability, Jeannie's curious, and when you're curious, you're helping other people. The vulnerability, by the way, to say, hey, I don't know anything. I'm here to learn, putting that person, quote unquote, the position of power and build relationship, right? And that's where trust yeah. comes from, that building yeah. vulnerability. And then, so as you, you know, were, I don't know if um, at the time they had management tracks, were you guiding your career? Jeannie, talk through that. Were you yeah. asking for new roles? How did that happen? Yeah, so um, I was in the program. So I had check-ins with um, HR business partner, I think, probably that's what we call them today. But I had a representative from HR who checked in with me from time to time and, you know, see how I was doing. And I remember having this conversation with her about my senses. You know, I've kind of like read everything there's to be read. Um, I've been here, you know, year or whatever it was. And um, that we have this like this, you know, this is a telephone company after all. Right. So there are instruction booklets everywhere because it comes from the you know, bell system, right? So there was GI, what's called GI, which is general instructions. Um, and then there was some other G thing, some some general management practice or something. I mean, I used to read this thing inside. I mean, I'm a student after all, right, Molly? So when somebody tells me read, I read. <laughs> inside and out, many times over. And, and I watch people, it's fascinating. I'm like, well, I think I've learned everything that I could learn. So I'm sort of curious as to like, when's, what's the next one, you know, that I, I'm going to be on the move for learning more. And when I mentioned this to my second level manager at the time, he said, no, no. So, you know, you sort of do this for a while. And then once you master being a supervisor and you can be on your own, you know, you stay there for like five years and then we move you to be an engineer on a lateral basis. And then you stay there for, you know, several years to learn that. And I'm listening to this guy. I'm going, wait a minute. I'm like, he's talking about like potentially decades. And I said, that, no, that, that doesn't, <laughs> that talk doesn't hunt for me. <laughs> right? And I remember telling the HR uh, managers like, yeah, I want to kind of like, you know, figure out what I can do next, you know, and move up. Right. And I don't even know what that means, you know, but I, I could see, I was beginning to see that I can do my boss's job. I can do other people's job. And that's also when she introduced me to, now we call them uh, employee resource group, ERGs. And she asked me to be be, um, attending the ERG group meetings. At the time we had two organizations, 
One was um, the women's organization, and the other one was MMA, Minority Management Association. Oh, my God. I can't believe I remember that. So I started to go to their meetings. And, you know, I have to say it was fabulous because I got to see women and people of color. And it was nobody, no Asians, but still it was like, oh, my God, people other than, you know, the people I work with every day. And they had similar issues with me. You know, the women had similar issues. And I met some amazing older women who have paved the way, particularly through the consent decree, the AT&T consent decree. Um, and also people of color who are much older than me, who've gone through all of the hardship, probably more than I did, right? Particularly the African-American um, leaders. And I just learned so much. And that made all the difference for me in for me to get, get a place of safety. Oh, I love that there was that support group. And I'm, I'm impressed that it was as developed as it was back then. That's a real yes. gift. Yes. I talk about this all the time. They were really ahead of their time. Amazing. This AT&T consent decree, say more about that, please. So I believe um, one of, there was a class action lawsuit or some kind of an investigation from Department of Labor, I think, with AT&T where they didn't have any women leaders in technical management positions. And the consent decree AT&T signed basically uh, mandated that they put women in technical positions of leadership. Also into, I believe, um, the, the frontline employee jobs. So that forced AT&T to put women into fields of technical functions where they wouldn't have otherwise gone. And these were women who were only ones, first ones to arrive in these roles. And they really paved the way for people like me. And, you know, and I'm sure they had affirmative action programs as well, which I'm sure I was hired under the affirmative action program back then. I, I don't think any corporations did anything on their own, right? So um, it, it really... Although I felt lonely in my work, having the opportunity to actually meet and speak with and learn from women and people of color, particularly women who went to those positions through the consent decree, made all the difference. Oh, spectacular. I love it. The, the, so I can see you. Okay. Hi, knock, knock. Not going to stay here for 10 years making lateral moves. <laughs> Um, so how did you, cause this is again, trailblazing, you're just trailblazing the whole time. You don't know any better. So I think that that's fabulous. How did you get to that next level and next, and then just talk about the ascent to, you know, where you're, you're leading businesses because, um, yeah, this is yeah. really informing. So through the conversation with, um, my HR person and through making connections through the ERGs, I started to, you know, I'm a curious person, which means, Molly, I ask a million questions uh, and sometimes I can be a real pain, right? And um, because I ask so many questions and I went, well, I'm curious about that job. I, I wonder what they do. So they decided to put me on a staff job. Um, so they put, took me away from the field job, still same organization, and put me on the staff job. 
And from that staff job, I got an opportunity to work with other functions within the company outside of that department. And through that, I made connections and made a lateral move to another department on a staff function. And there I worked for several people, a white woman and a white man, who really took me under their wing. And I have to actually say one person's name because he really made a difference. His name is Jay Cullivan. And he was, oh my God, at that time, I think he was like managing executive director or vice president or something in this other organization. And he took a um, liking to me and wanted, he, I don't even know if he called him mentoring, but he started to mentor me. And he started to really take notice in the work that I did. And he introduced me to so many other higher ranking people, his peer group, other people in his organization. And that really opened the door for me to get promoted. And once I started to build upon my reputation of over-delivering on what I was given in every job, I cannot tell you, I think in my entire career, maybe other than two or three times, people came asking for me because my work spoke for itself. And wow. It's the, it's the best thing, right? And because it was a big company and through all the M&As, it felt like I didn't work for a single company for 28 years. It felt like I worked for many companies over 28 years. And probably, truth be told, one of the reasons why I stayed because there was just so much learning that happened along the way. And through... Um, executing. And, you know, I sort of did develop this reputation of being a strong operations leader and um, getting stuff done, leading organizations. The best time was actually, Molly, when I went back to my first organization where I started as the department head. <laughs> so I went back to equipment installation as the general manager. And I was responsible for approximately a thousand people. And the funniest thing about that is every technician who worked for me, they felt like they made me. And they were so proud when I came back because I made it. Oh, it my God, that's my God. That is so spectacular. The, <laughs> the ownership of your success. Folks, this is what it means to commit to each other's success. Right. Newsflash. I, and, and I want to call out Jay here because that's what sponsorship is. When people are talking about you, when you're not in the room yeah. um, and for folks of whatever, whatever background you have, please know that your power to vouch for someone. And of course, Jay knew it wasn't a blind faith. It was, he knew the, the quality of person and work. And for many people, they're listening, Jeannie, and they're like, look, at, I'm really good or whatever, but they're not getting those breaks. And right. it takes that recipe. So we all, you know, no one gets to where they are on their own. Oh my and God, just, 100%. Right, just want to empower everyone to realize how, how impactful you 
might be even unknowingly in someone else's success. And then just, I just can't even imagine these people like she's coming back and, and really feeling like they were part of that. I mean, that's. That oh, I, and even after I left that organization and continue to move up, I remember I used to get these emails from my technicians who would say, Oh, there you go again. We're, we did you well. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So let us get a really, really real. Cause I'm just assuming that there's lots of times where you had to deliver the tough feedback. You had to break a little glass in the right way. So Jeannie, just share a bit for our audience, because we know this was not all uh, unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> no, no, and I, I do think for me, it was a combination of many factors. One part of is who I am as a human and also the environment I was afforded, but also one of the things, and you know, I've been thinking about this, Molly, I think that when you are the only one in the room, sometimes, at least for me, it made me take stock in watching everybody's behavior. Because you want to make sure you get the lay of the land. And I developed, maybe I already had them and I kind of honed the skill, it's hard to know. But I developed this ability to be perceptive in every environment I entered, where I wasn't always the first one to open my mouth, but I watched everybody else's speaking, who's being listened to, who's being ignored, who's displaying body language of consent versus fear versus power. And I, I assessed how that room operate, operated and who had the power and who was the bully and who was not. And once I did that, then I was able to enter that space and speak with intention and also take in who responded in what way when I spoke. Um, and I was able to figure out who was my enemy, so to speak, and who was my ally. And I learned over the years that my, my objective was to grow the allyship, so grow the mentors and sponsors in my midst, not necessarily work on not having any enemies because I knew that was not possible because of who I was, because of the way I operate, you know, I speak up, um, and because of what I look like, that my goal eventually became having enough allies and supporters that that fear of having a great infrastructure support will keep my enemies in the closet. Ugh. Strategy 101. <laughs> and <corporate>. it worked. <laughs> well, it, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing because folks, Jeannie was controlling what she could control, right? You can't sweat the things that you really can't do much about or are of marginal utility because, and I think the ownership of, hey, not everyone is going to love me the way I right. want and I can't control that, right? And instead of, I think, obsessing about that, um, that's a, a, a real 
I don't know that's probably a chemical engineering practicality, yeah. right? You're like, yeah. this is this is what's real. Exactly. And, you know, and I screwed up over the, you know, when you're young and bright and I was arrogant as get go. Oh, my God. And, um, you know, I thought I was the smartest one. But because I was perceptive, because I knew the power play, um, I learned over my career how to speak, when to speak. And to me, Molly, I have to tell you, the difference that made for me is the way I spoke to people. And I have this tendency, I don't know where it comes from, honestly. When I get mad and intense, I slow down. I articulate words more. I pause more. I have an intense facial expression to begin with. So I know when I don't smile, I come off pretty serious. And because I am super focused on the task at hand, I'm not a big small talker, although I had to develop that over the years because, you know, I can be pretty scary, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's hard when you have position power and you have that fear factor, right? People, you, you kind of freeze people. So I had to work on that um, because I'm just so intensely focused on what we need to get done. It's, it's that operator in me in some ways. But I because of that, people knew that when I spoke, I think it was worth listening to. And I never shied away from saying my mind. But because I said it authentically and I spoke from the heart, I don't have a pretentious bone in my body. I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fake it because it's just too much work, frankly, for me. Um, I think people figure out over time that what you see is what you get. And I'm not afraid to tell you that, you know, you're not working out. And to be honest, I didn't care what level you were. And if you were above me, and you were a bully, not even to me, but for, but to others, you heard from me. Oh, okay, pause. This is so great. Listeners are on the edge of their chairs. <laughs> Without naming names, can you take us through approaching this person? Give us a setup, approach the person, and just how did you say it? Well, so one conversation I had was, I was in the room when that behavior got exhibited and it was, uh, it was just um, maybe three of us. It wasn't a huge, and the rest of the folks were on the phone and the person who was the target of this bullying was on the phone on the conference call. I was in the room after the conference call was over. I remember saying to this person, I want to tell you that that behavior was so unprofessional. As a, as a executive in this company, I am insulted by that behavior. And it is not appropriate for the role we occupy and it is not okay. Boom. Factual, non-emotional, and what was the response, Jeannie? 
stunned. Absolutely stunned. Couldn't believe it came out of my mouth. And paralyzed. Para and honestly, it didn't go well from there, right? And, but... One thing, <laughs> one thing I've done over my career is I had a line of values. And if you cross that line and you are in position of power higher than me, I was perfectly okay. And I had these conversations with others where I used to say, if people cross that line and we find out that Jeannie and Verizon need to get a divorce. It is perfectly okay. It is not the end of the world. Jeannie's going to be okay. Verizon's going to be okay. <laughs> but let's be really clear as to what my values are. This is, this is awesome. And was <laughs> that something that there was that, Needed to have, sounds to me, Gene, it was just, that was just what was there. You never had to even really develop that. That just was your, that, that was your line. Or was there so. a point where you were a little much? No, you know, I think, yeah, I, oh, I don't know. I have this, I have this theory, Molly, that as we get older, we become more of ourselves. <laughs> and I think for me, as I got older and hopefully wiser, um, and, you know, everything has to do with the fact that, of course, I was, quote, unquote, successful, right? Mm -hmm. I climbed up the ladder. Um, I had position power. And therefore, the self-fulfilling prophecy for me was I needed to be more of myself. And it got easier, honestly. And I never, I don't remember ever having a thought in my mind that went like, oh my God, if I'm not here, I'm going to be screwed. I'm like done. I never had those feelings. I don't know where that comes from, but I always knew that if I couldn't be there, I'd be fine. I'd be fine elsewhere. So I never had that fear of, Am I, am I, are people going to like, let me go? Or am I, am I going to not, not like make it? I never had those feelings. Yeah. I relate to that a hundred percent. So I, I, I know that for some people that is a yeah. real thing, you know, but yes. I'm like the same way. I'm like, I'm fine. And if it's not here, it's somewhere else. And it's all exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, um, yeah. And it, it was, and, and also at the same time, recognizing how um, fortunate I've been to have had the opportunity to lead incredible organizations, get some amazing things done, running big shops, and having so much fun, right? Because I really believe in having fun. I mean, it was a blast. It's crazy. Okay, I have a few things. I love how you brought up the um, arrogant you know, smartest one in the room. I'm kind of cringing at my own behavior because I went through <laughs> that too. As you get, as you get going, it can be tough for people to really give you the input that you need to hear. Were there particular people who were really upfront with you that you really trusted? What were the ways that you got the information that you really needed to hear that can be very difficult for people to share? Up? Oh, so 
part of it was um, I genuinely said what I meant, which is I'm I'm by nature an open door person. So I'm because of my curiosity, I'm super curious as to what you think, what's your input. So I tend to ask a million questions and even to my people, right? And I remember saying to my folks, I, you know, this is a problem we need to solve. Um, I'm I'm all ears as to what you think. Um, particularly because in super technical environments, I'm not the expert. Yeah. But I had experts around the table. So it was really important for me to listen to that expertise. Now, I know I can learn it, but my job was to assemble the data, do the right analytics of the data, and come out on the other end with a decision that was right for the business. So I was clear about that, but I needed to get the input that I needed. Sometimes that openness created a perception particularly with men, that they thought I meant to imply that I couldn't make a decision. So I had to, from time to time, verbalize my intention to say, let's be really clear. I'm 100% clear in my head as to who has 51% of the vote, and that will be me. But I want to get all the input. And because I'm asking doesn't mean I'm afraid to make a call. So let's just put that out there and make it clear. <laughs> I don't believe in obtuseness. So it, I just wanted to be very clear with people about that. And I did this often, you know, over and over again with many things, right? And when I started to get feedback, and I used to say to people, I, I remember at, at town halls, I used to say, you know, I didn't say this part to people, but my observation, Molly, watching leaders in my lifetime is people say the most beautifully crafted words around what should be. We have mission, vision, diversity statements, values plastered all over our company's walls. I mean, they're beautiful. It is heck of a lot harder to put it into action. And I saw a lot of separation from the mouth, from the feet. And I really didn't want to be that. So one of the ways I didn't want to be that is to I was, is that I would say it. And I would say to my people in every meeting I can imagine, the minute you see my mouth separate from my feet, I want you to kick me. I would say it flat out. Probably not smart, but I did it. <laughs> I love and, it. That's empowering people. Right. But I needed to say it because it was also a little bit of a test for me, right? So if you're going to like do it, and if you say this is important, then you should like declare it and and then see what how you react when people actually do it. And I surrounded myself with super smart people who knew how to push back at me. And they were never disrespectful or yell, none of that, right? But they would say, hey, this is this is what I would say about that, or this is what I would say about that. And then sometimes when I knew I screwed up and I didn't fix it on the fly, oh, those are the terrible moments. I would actually, I learned to be immediate with my feedback or my asking for feedback. So let's say I knew I screwed up something in a way I said something to somebody at a meeting. 
I would actually go right after and say, I want to know how that went. And in the moment, because it's so fresh, people will tell you. And I learned from that. And I did the opposite too. When somebody offended me or they they did something that was not enough, I would actually address it immediately with that person. I didn't wait. And I found that to be super helpful. Well, that just shows the sense of, you know what you're trying to do. The intention is there with the courage to execute on it. And it's just, I'm just so overwhelmed by you. It's a wonderful, uh, all that you've shared so far just really would help anyone new to management or seasoned in management to really think twice about how they move through space and, um, and to really have created that legacy reputation for yourself. Jeannie, that is, um, there's no surprise that you had so much fun, you know, because yes. when you can really be who you are and just let it rip and do great things with other people. It doesn't really get any better. You know, it's like the best. Yeah. And, you know, the biggest evidence, I mean, I, I had, I had tears in my eyes when I finally announced my retirement, I was just overwhelmed by notes and emails from people I didn't remember that I didn't even know who wrote me this amazing emails about how I impacted their lives. I mean, it was just astounding. And mostly, Molly, it was about how, how, I, how I behaved in a way that allowed them to know that they can be themselves and that how I didn't tolerate this hierarchical bullying behavior in my midst. No matter who they were, no matter who was in the room. And, and they were, <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And I had no idea how some of these people were, but they were, they were pouring out. It was great. I am um, so proud, so inspired. And I know we can go on and on. I um, will just ask you, you've shared a lot and I appreciate you're going down memory lane, even though we could go on another two hours. Is there a top takeaway as you have reflected and shared? I'm just curious what's top of mind for you. Oh, so I would say um, being vulnerable, authentic, genuine, courageous, bold, fearless, all those great attributes that we say we should all have. I've learned um, to be more compassionate with myself and know that all these things are a muscle that I have to exercise every day. And sometimes I fail and it's okay. As long as I recognize it and I keep building that muscle. And I know day by day, I get more self-reflective about my limitations. I always say, Molly, that I am the biggest experiment there is. <laughs> I am the biggest mystery there is. And my aim is to be better every day than I was the day before. Oh, such wise words. I'm virtual hug to you. That was so 
<laughs> Fabulous. Jeannie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all the gems you shared. I, I am grateful for all you've done to role model leading well and thank offering uh, us ways to navigate these tough talks from the top. You, my friend, are a big part of the solution. So if I might be a tiny bit helpful in your journey, please let me know. I am cheering. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, you take good care, Jeannie. We will see you very soon. You bet. Thanks. Oh, folks, it does not get any better than that, okay? I am blown away. My thought for the week, of course, thanks to Jeannie. She says, take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Jeannie's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 